A reading from the book of James, chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, so also faith by itself, if it does not Sorry, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. It is uh, powerful, very convicting. We pray that uh, we would not merely be challenged today, but, but encouraged and filled by your spirit to become more like Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, you know that one way to hollow out uh, Christianity is to observe the ceremonies that go along with it while dismissing its convictions. That is, perhaps there are certain rituals and traditions that some people might observe, but they do not buy the real Jesus. Now, I saw this years ago, many years ago, uh, when I was at a Christmas Eve service in a very famous cathedral in Europe, and there at that building, there were hundreds of locals and tourists that were packing the building uh, for a beautiful Christmas Eve service, at least in its vibe and the music and so forth in the building. And the preacher then got up and spent his entire time uh, apologizing for Christian faith, denying it, saying things like, well, we know as modern people, we cannot believe things like a virgin birth or miracles or really anything else the Bible says about uh, Jesus, except of course that Jesus loves everyone, right? And so what we can call that is, is kind of the warm fuzzies uh, of Christian tradition without the truth claims. Now, in our culture right now, there are many stories about people becoming nuns, right? Not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S. 
people who are no longer holding on to the pretense of belief. And so perhaps many now are maybe just saying, well, we like maybe the Christmas music and that's about it. We're not even going to, again, keep up the, the show of sort of uh, any sort of semblance of Christian faith. So that is one way to gut the Christian faith, denying what it teaches, what the Bible teaches. And according to James' friends, there's another way to gut Christianity. And it's not, in this case, so much intellectual rejection. In fact, there might be strong affirmation of the basic teaching of Christianity, but rather the issue that James is dealing with is inaction. That is, refusing to apply what is preached to us. And so this person affirms Christian essentials, perhaps, but has very little to show for it. And so James is warning that we must not simply connect the doctrinal dots, as it were, but we must also live out what we uh, believe. Now, last week we saw, and this is really a continuation of that portion of James, we saw that James was dealing with the problem of uh, biases and favoritism in the church, that the, the folks in his congregation or congregations, they were showing preferential treatment to those who were noticeably well-to-do. In other words, somebody comes into your church and you know, you're, you're kind of drawn to potentially the, you know, the popularity or the power that a person may have or, or the fact that they might be able to buy you a new facility, one in which um, you're not surprised by bright yellow when you walk into the building and you weren't warned about it. Uh, if you're on live stream, you'd have to be here to get that. Um, but James is saying, do not show that kind of favoritism, but love everyone who comes into your midst, because God cares about not only the rich, but those who are struggling economically. And so James is asking, are we treating people the way that God treats us? You see, the larger issue here, friends, is that to have Jesus as our Savior means that we must have him as our Lord. And so the question for us this morning is, do we possess living faith or merely are we professing a kind of dead faith? Now, this is a very hard-hitting passage. I think you noticed it when you heard it read, and if you've read it before, which many of you have, you know it's a tough one. But I want to say at the outset that James here is writing to professing believers. He calls them you know, brothers and sisters in faith. The goal here of James is not to blast his friends and say, you know, you're all heathens. But rather what he's trying to do is to get us to uh, put our doing in line with what we believe. And this is not only an issue in their day, but of course it's an issue in our day. So very simply today, although there's some, uh, there's some meaty verses in this passage, I want to look at what faith what true faith is not, and really that's what James spends a lot of time on, but then also what true faith is. And we'll look at some examples of that um, in the Old Testament, but also for us. So what true faith is not. James gives us an example by asking a rhetorical question, and the answer means then it's built into his question. What good is it, brothers and sisters, James asks, if someone claims to have faith, now that word claims to is very important. We're going to come back to that. 
But a person claims to have faith but does not have accompanying works. For example, if, if a brother or a sister lacks daily food and you say, what, go, go and, and be warm. Now, here in the summer, that's not as applicable. But in his case, you know, maybe a person comes in and it's cold outside. And what he's saying here is the Christian says, go and be warm and be filled. So the person is hungry. And what we're doing in this scenario is simply giving, frankly, platitudes, you know, well-wishing and that kind of thing. And James says, in that case, what good are your words? They're not useful. And so he says, faith without works is, is dead. And he says, faith without works is useless. He says it in verse 17, verse 20, um, and also in verse 26. Now, apparently, again, this was a problem in James' time. He was dealing with this, and we too must look at ourselves realistically. And it's very important to say, look at ourselves. I think this is the kind of passage where we can begin to point fingers and James says, no, look in the mirror of the word as we've been hearing and let it convict you. Uh, the writer Sam Alberry has said, deedless Christianity is dead Christianity. That's very convicting. Real faith acts, real love does. That is to say that genuine belief leads to loving and caring for others. It, it prompts us to have compassion and concern for people that are in need, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. So true faith not only entails agreement then with the facts of Christianity, not only entails trusting Christ in a very personal way for salvation, but it also then leads to Christ-like action and works of love that please the Lord, that glorify the glorified Lord Jesus, but also that then benefit others. In other words, it can't just be about our words. And, and we, we know this in relationships, right? We, we know it in marriage. You know, sometimes in a, in a home, you know, somebody will say, well, don't you love me? And he, the other person, usually the husband, will say, yes, of course I do. You know I love you. Well, then can you do the dishes? Um, I'll do the dishes tonight, honey, um, to live this out. James is saying, again, align your deeds with your words. Words are, in some sense, certified and shown by our deeds and the way that we live our faith out. In verse 18, James gives a kind of false binary he says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works, like I can have one but not the other. And then James says, show me your faith apart from works, but then I'll show you my faith by my works. Now, you know, as I was reading this, I think we have to be careful not to turn this into two guys arguing in a bar that want to, like, start arm wrestling. Um, James is basically saying, look, you can't have one without the other. And James is certainly not boasting when he says, I will show you my faith by my works. Rather, he's doing the opposite. He is saying in this letter that grace-based salvation results in a life lived for the glory of God and for the love and the benefit of our neighbor, especially those of the household of faith. And so saving faith and Works of love, we could say, are like two wings on an airplane. Um, when you're up there in the air, you want, or when you're taking off or landing, you want to make sure both wings are intact. 
And James is trying to keep us from separating those two important aspects of Christian life. And so believing begets doing. Believing begets loving and caring and compassion. Now James presses it further. In verse 19 he says, again, he's talking to somebody. It could be hypothetical or perhaps it comes from a real conversation he's had. You believe that God is one. Good job on that. That, That's an important affirmation. That is the core of Israel's faith. Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. But then James says, even the demons believe that much. The demons don't doubt that God is one. They know that God is God, and yet they shudder because they hate God. They don't want to serve God. And so what James, of course, is saying here is that he's exposing that which is nothing more than the faith of demons. Now, friends, this is very important to say. As important as sound theology, biblical theology is, biblical faith is more than assenting to the truth claims of Christianity. It certainly includes that. Again, we can't do like you know that I was showing you at the beginning of the sermon here. You, you can't say, well, I'm going to be a Christian, but I don't buy any of the main teachings. That is one kind of denial of Christian faith. But James is saying it is more than, true Christianity is more than assenting to the truth claims of Christ. Yes, we affirm the virgin birth, we affirm the life, ministry, the death of Jesus for our sins, and certainly his resurrection from the dead for our eternal life. But I, for one, I think in the history of my Christian life, you know, I'm a person who can get fired up about uh, doctrine. I'm excited about it. I know a lot of you are. It's important. Dare I say, I think it's kind of fun sometimes to talk about it, to, to debate it maybe, to refine these things. We love ideas, many of us. But in this case, the problem is not likely our, our content, friends, but our neglect in applying it. James is saying, you hold to the truth and you live out the truth. John Calvin, who is widely known across the world and throughout history as one who emphasized sound theology, biblical theology, and he said, in reflecting on James, we do not attain salvation by a frigid and bare knowledge of God. Our knowledge of God must be warm and filled uh, with the kind of response that leads to living in such a way that James calls us to live. It's been said that creeds, what we believe, must beget deeds. What we do, our belief in Christ um, begets living for him in the way that we love our neighbor, especially our neighbors in need. Now, we might wonder, and many have, and we're going to get to this a little bit later when Paul gives us examples from, (laughs) James gives us examples from the Old Testament, but some have wondered, and it's a fair question, now what about Paul's statement in Romans 4? Uh, Paul teaches there that a man is saved, a woman is saved by faith in Christ apart from works. And then some say, you see, the Bible contradicts itself. 
Paul and James do not agree. But friends, that is not the case. They do agree. You see, Paul is dealing with those who relied on their works for salvation instead of Christ alone. They were boasting in their works. They thought their good deeds saved us. And Paul says, no, it is only what Christ has done. That is the basis of your right relationship with God. Paul is saying that our works cannot bring us to Christ. But then James is dealing with a different issue. He is saying that after we come to Christ, works must flow, works are imperative. But the works that we have, both James and Paul say this, are not the root of our salvation. They are the fruit of our salvation. They flow from our union with Jesus. And so James and Paul have different ways of speaking to that issue. We could say that faith is the foundation, but of course, when you're building a house, you don't just have the foundation. There must be walls, there must be a roof. And James says that your faith must beget the works of love that God calls you to. And of course, Paul in the New Testament expresses these twin realities quite beautifully as well. We're gonna hear later at the prayer of confession an assurance that by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing, but it is the gift of God. It's a gift so that no one can boast. So that's Paul's strong statement. That you're saved not by what you do, but by what Christ has done as a gift for you. But then, of course, Paul goes on just a few verses later to say in verse 10, in that same chapter, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we're not saved by good works. We are saved for good works. And we are God's workmanship. And so that's what James is saying here in this passage. He is saying that faith is brought to maturity through action. Our faith is completed. It is brought to its goal not simply as we talk about it, but as we apply it with one another and as we apply it out on the world. Um, the theologian J.I. Packer, whom some of you have heard of and perhaps read, he said, I think really beautifully, pulling this all together, he said, though we are justified or made right with God by faith alone, we are made right with God by faith alone, the faith that justifies is never alone. And that's really the key way to understand this. Faith produces moral fruit. It transforms one's way of living. It begets virtue. So that's kind of looking a little bit at what James is saying faith is not. Now I want to talk about what true faith is and get into a few examples here. James is calling us again, very basically, as believers. He's calling us to meet the needs of others, especially those that we know, in practical, loving, compassionate ways. As Paul puts it in Galatians 6.10, we are to do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Now, there are so many examples of this. I, I um, 
know somebody who was in ministry many years ago, and he was in a church in Philadelphia, and he said there was a wealthy man who, um, you know, he didn't flaunt his wealth, but people knew he had means. And one of the things he did in, in caring for others is he took a family that was in need kind of under his wing. He, he gave to them quite um, generously, but he also befriended them. He actually helped them with budgeting and those kinds of things. And, and the way this story was told to me more than once is that, again, it wasn't condescending, but it was a coming alongside. I'm here to help. I want to share the resources that, resources that God has given to me with you. Closer to home, we had a couple here uh, years ago who were very involved in our church. He was actually an elder on the session, and, and they let it be known to Liz and me just very quietly. They, they, they were certainly never boastful about it. They were under the radar, but one of the things they mentioned is that they budgeted for benevolence, meaning not just giving to the church, and they gave generously was our impression, but... They wanted to have um, money set aside for just those moments of surprise when people in the church or other believers that they know or knew um, just needed care and needed help. And so they budgeted for that kind of beautiful giving, uh, a surprise giving uh, when the need arose. Now, friends, this, it's really come home to me this week, this this arises powerfully out of um, a solid Christian tradition of teaching. Um, we as a church stand in what's called often the Reformed tradition, and uh, so many of the teachers of the past centuries have emphasized not only beautifully rich and solid and deep doctrine and teaching, but also that that must flow into practically caring for others. Just this week, um, in the Gospel Coalition, there is a, a great little article about um, churches that uh, proclaim a robust theology have often emphasized in powerful ways that we must care for others, especially the poor. There was a confession that uh, is called the Belgic Confession. We don't hear about it a lot, but, you know, Belgium <laughs> it was written in. Europe in 1561, and I was reminded just from this article uh, just this week that in that confession that, that richly talks about, you know, God is Trinity and the work of Jesus and things like the Lord's Supper and all these wonderful doctrines, it then says that churches should be properly ordered, meaning that we should be run well and set up in such a way so that also the poor and all the afflicted may be helped and comforted according to their need. That was built into their statement so that uh, their neighbors could be cared for through the ministry of the church. Now, I want to talk to you about a specific way this was lived out about 18 years ago, 15 years ago in our church. I have told this story before, but it was so long ago it, it no longer exists in my notes. But... Um, we had a woman who came to our church who was friends of some of our folks, and her name was Valerie, and she worked uh, in, in Christian apologetics, and her background was that of being a librarian, and she just hadn't made a lot of money as a librarian. She was a very bright and well-read uh, well lady, um, but she just didn't have a lot of means, and uh, she, she became part of our church. She actually became part of our family in a way, and many of the families of the church, we had her over and our kids got to know her. 
And uh, she came upon hard times. She didn't have, again, a lot of means, and she got diagnosed with cancer uh, toward really the latter part of her years with our church. And it was just a beautiful, wonderful thing to watch this congregation, led by our deacon ministry in particular, but others too. It was beautiful to watch our church come alongside her. Um, again, without fanfare and very quietly, our deacon fund, led by our deacons, our ordained leaders. Uh, they, they bought her a used car because she didn't really have a way of getting around. There were folks who came alongside her and helped her go to uh, doctor's appointments. And several of us were with her at the end of her life um, in the hospital because our church was her family. Well, in addition to that, uh, we had a funeral, funeral for her. It was in our old building. And one of the things our church did, again, through the Deacon Fund, is we flew her parents out from Baltimore. And uh, I know it was a blessing for them to sit in the front row. And, and one of the things we did, and this was a judgment call on my part, but she had a lot of friends who wanted to speak at the funeral. And a few of you may remember this. And I said, okay, you know, we'll, we'll let a couple of you do that. <laughs> they got long-winded. <laughs> And I think the service went almost three hours. <laughs> and I was ah, you know. But I, we had a reception for everyone afterward, and one of her friends, who was a librarian, came up, and she let me know. Um, she let it know when she was speaking that basically she had no faith. She was atheist or agnostic. But this woman said to me, uh, we have all been so blown away by the way your church has cared for Valerie and it's really spoken powerfully to us. Think of the words of James, show me your faith by your works. And this is not like we're showing off, it is a demonstration of the love that Christ has shown to us. Now, as we think about giving, I think a whole host of issues come in. I mean, we need wisdom and discernment. We have to recognize that sometimes I think giving in some situations without guidance can end up enabling more than liberating. I have known situations, and I think you have too, where, where people are well-intentioned and they're trying to help others, but in some ways maybe the problems of others just are worsened by the help. But God calls us to do what we can with wisdom and with compassion. And sometimes, friends, it's awkward, and, and we just have to chuckle. Um, I grew up, at, many of you know, at Hollywood Presbyterian Church, and I spent a lot of time there in Hollywood, and that church was right in the heart of Hollywood. And uh, therefore, we had a fair amount of diverse people coming onto the campus. It was a large campus. And our college group met in one room, and I remember that we had this man uh, who who may have been unhoused, it wasn't clear always, but um, his, his name was Timothy, and he would come in, and he would just come into the college group. He was older than we were, but for the most part, you know, the group was interactive with him, and the guys in the group would try to maybe pull him apart, and pull him aside to talk to him and just get to know him, because, you know, we didn't want that to feel awkward for everyone. And we got to know him a little bit, and I remember he came up to me as I was leaving, um, and I was at my car, and he said, do you have some money? So I pulled out my wallet, and I gave him $10, <laughs> and, 
And he looked at it, and he looked up, and he, he said, but the Korean all-you-can-eat barbecue down the street is 14. <laughs> and I said, I don't know. I don't know if, I only had 10 at the time. I don't know what. But sometimes you just, you do what you can. Um, you do your best. And I think we need to recognize that, again, um, the church can be part of God's work in this world to try to improve what uh, is going on and all, all the heartbreak we are seeing. Uh, again, in this article that I mentioned that I read this week, it, it mentioned that a writer who wrote a biography of John Calvin said that in Geneva, the pastors and the churches were always defending the cause of helpless orphans, poor laborers, mistreated prisoners, despised refugees, and social misfits. The writer went on to say, those leaders of the church also worked to root out social and economic injustice. Now, again, we read this and we think, well, we can't address every need. There are so many deep and complicated issues. Um, we are not, you know, the Miss American pageant where we're going to solve world hunger but we need to try to address the things that we have in front of us and I want to tell you that is as a congregation that's involved in Orange County the Orange County Rescue Mission and a number of you have been a part of this there was a group of us um, years ago who who took a tour of the Orange County Rescue Mission and what really struck me and I didn't know this going in, it was how biblically holistic it was. In other words, it dealt with the whole, it deals with the whole person. They told us that they, as, as, a, as a facility, that they require accountability, no drugs or crime are tolerated, and yet they treat people with the dignity of expectations as well as kind compassion, that is, they come alongside people to help them get back on their feet. And it's a beautiful thing, again, to see this congregation involved in this. Now, Paul gives us examples from the Old Testament. And as he does, we can see Paul and James coming at the complementary teaching on this topic of faith and works, in particular as they deal with Father Abraham. You see, Paul in Romans says that Abraham was justified by faith alone apart from works. And when he says that, he's referring to chapter 15 in Genesis, where God said, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. I will give you a lamb. And Abraham believed the promises of God. And then James comes to Abraham, and he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, there, James is referring to Genesis 22, where Abraham, what is he doing? He's applying his faith in his willingness to offer up his son Isaac, the promised son. He's saying, I will give this back to you, Lord. Now, God does not require ultimately that son of Abraham. He stays Abraham's hand. But the point is, James is saying, look, Abraham's faith was active along with his works. And that word there is synergy. His faith was completed by his works. His faith was brought to its goal. In other words, Abraham was matured in his faith in that way. 
And so Paul deals with the foundation of Abraham's faith or his salvation, and James deals with the fruit, the obedience of Abraham's salvation. Well, in verse 25, James then likewise speaks of another Old Testament example. He talks about the harlot Rahab, who, and this is quite a story in Joshua 2, we are told that she showed her faith when two men of Joshua went in as spies into the land of Jericho, and Rahab the harlot hid them on her roof and told the king of Jericho, well, they've gone out another way and they were able to escape. And the, uh, Rahab told the spies, will you show favor to my household because I know God has given Jericho over to the Lord. Will you show kindness to my household? And the spies said, yes, we will. And so James here says, that Rahab was an example of a person who was transformed by a living faith that yielded into works. And friends, Rahab was no longer known as the harlot who hid spies, but she became the wife of a man named Salmon or Salmon. She became the mother of Boaz, and Matthew 1 says she was rooted firmly in the genealogy of Jesus a person that lived out her faith, though she had a very broken background. And so James says, faith without loving action is like a body without a soul. It is a lifeless carcass. On the other hand, Romans says that God has saved us for the obedience of faith. Now, again, when we hear all this, addressing needs usually starts in very small ways. We're, we're not going to solve, again, world hunger. It's not like everyone you know needs a kidney. <laughs> That's been dealt with. That's been covered for me. Um, often it's, you know, again, a coat or a hot meal, or in our situation, it may be time spent with somebody. Um, it may be a phone call. It, it, providentially, I, uh, we received a notice from somebody who was part of our church many years ago, who's in need, and uh, you know, I'm called to give that person a call this week. Um, it may mean sending a card or an email, yeah, because sometimes uh, people can read emails more easily than they can hear you on the phone. It may mean, as we got a prayer request on the prayer chain, it means running some errands or, or taking somebody to the doctor's office. All of these different things are opportunities to show our faith in works of love. But I want us to remember here, as we wrap this up, it's not just believing that Christ exists or that Christ died, but it's believing in Christ. And it is Christ, friends, who didn't simply give us his jacket or a cup of warm soup, but he gave us his very life. And as we saw last week, Christ, as the royal Savior, fulfilled the royal law, and he takes that law, and he gives it to us, and he says, now, love each other. Love especially those in need. Don't make this overly complicated. Carry out the law of liberty in union with me. 
And so the end of Galatians, at the end of that letter, Paul says that what really matters is faith expressing itself through love. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to apply this very challenging passage. We ask that you would help us to have eyes to see and perhaps even more hearts that care. Forgive us when our hearts grow cold or we're just so busy to, um, just too busy to see the needs of people around us. God, we confess that sometimes these issues create awkwardness for us. Um, perhaps our, our brains start spinning out all sorts of excuses. We, we pray that we would not do that, that we would put our faith in Christ, that our doctrine and theology would be strong and robust and that we would grow in understanding what the scripture says about Jesus. But help us not simply to believe that, but to believe in. And we pray that our faith in Christ would lead to beautiful, surprising, creative works of love and costly works of love. We thank you that Jesus paid the ultimate price and gave us not simply a coat or a cup of soup, but he gave us his very life and help us to live in light of his love. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.